Welcome back to Behind the Tofu. A vegan podcast that brings you behind the tofu. Exploring underrepresented topics and issues surrounding veganism. I'm Ashley. You can find me on Twitter at Generally Done. I'm Seth. You can find me on Twitter at Bolts and Bombers. You can find us at BehindTheTofu.com, at Behind the Tofu Podcast on Instagram, and Behind the Tofu on Twitter. Please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever it is you find your podcasts. Today, we have two guests. We have Mitzi John L. Tan and John Bonifacio. Uh, Mitzi John L. Tan is a full-time climate justice activist based in Metro Manila, Philippines. She is the convener and international, international spokesperson of Youth Advocates for Climate Action Philippines, the Fridays for Future of Philippines. She's also active in the FFF International advocating for climate justice and making sure that voices of most affected peoples and areas, strikers are heard, amplified, and given space. She first became an activist in 2017 after integrating with indigenous leaders of her country, which pushed her to realize that collective action and system change is what we need for a just and green society. And John Bonifacio is a full-time climate activist and environmental activist. He is the educational coordinator for the Youth Advocates for Climate Action Philippines and the national spokesperson of youth environmental organization, Sarbohe, and a molecular biology graduate. The first question we always ask our guests, um, because this is a vegan podcast, are you guys vegan? And if so, how long have you been vegan? We're both not vegan. We're both pescatarians, so we do eat seafood. We started pretty recently, December last year, I think. Yeah, um, I do have plans to eventually become vegetarian i'm not sure about john yeah same here um we yeah we started transitioning less meat diet and now we're like seafood and plants only and maybe in the future like yeah we're thinking of how to make it like you know fully transition i guess to vegetarianism at least and possibly veganism so my follow-up to that is you know would you say that your climate activism has played a role in changing your personal diet or do you think that like you know you still feel that, you know, your collective action is maybe even more important than your personal diet, because I I wouldn't argue with that, um, or I wouldn't discount that if that's your position. Yeah, I also, I would also say that in the position that you are in, in the Philippines, I would say that being vegan would be a completely different, um, you know, approach. We have recently talked to somebody who's from the, well, not recently, it was at the beginning of the podcast, actually, we talked to somebody who's from the Philippines, um, and she talked a lot about how, you know, the culture is is largely meat-based, and um, it, it's kind of difficult to even do, even transition there, because there's not necessarily that option. So, I guess, would you guys echo that? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, well, with regard to Seth's question, yes, <laughs> I feel like majority of the reason why uh, Mitzi and I started to transition is because of our exposure to um, to the science and all the stuff that we've been hearing in climate activism. Like we recognize that collective action is still very primary when it comes to you know getting action things done. Uh, what needs to be done is mainly on the part of uh, large corporations and countries. But um, it sort of helps us like mentally, like in our mental health with the, with the climate crisis being such a big thing. Like we're doing all we can. So yeah, that's where it really started our transition to like a less meat, uh, less meat based diet, and yeah, uh, more plant based one really. Um, For Ashley, Ashley, your question was spot on. It is extremely difficult to be sustainable in the Philippines, not just with your diet, but with your lifestyle, with everything really, because to be sustainable is a privilege. To even have the idea of being sustainable, to consider what type of food you eat is a privilege because a lot of people have to figure out what to eat when they can eat. And really that's, that's just how it is in the Philippines and in a lot of countries, especially in the global South where healthy food, even it's not just even um, vegan food or vegetarian food or, or anything. Healthy food is expensive. So people will tend to go to the less healthy food, the more processed food, the food that does technically emit more because it's what's available. And yeah, uh, echoing John, it's the same thing where I have no illusions that my individual lifestyle changes will change the climate crisis and stop it. Um, but it's definitely something that I do because I think that there, in the ways that we can, we should do it as we continue to pressure the multinational companies in the global North countries to reduce their carbon dioxide emissions as much as possible. Um, so when it comes to uh, pressuring the global north in general to change, and I've had we had this conversation actually the last time we recorded 
um, with somebody from India talking about how people in America, right, need to change their diet before anybody else does. Um, I, I my question really is is how do you, how much do you think that I mean obviously I think that this is probably completely true, but how much do you think that colonial pressure and um, in, gen in general imperialism has impacted the um, the access to healthy food that you guys have in the Philippines? That's not one of the questions we had in the, in the document. That's just something I'm curious about. Um, I think it played a very big role. Um, for example, like a lot of the things that we're, we're having problems with right now in the Philippines is really food security. Like, um, how can we ensure that our country can be self-sustaining when it comes to our food? Like the Philippines is actually relatively in an okay position. Like when you look at it, like based on the percentage of agricultural land, like we have a decent amount of our land is, um, possibly agricultural, but the fact is, um, there's no investment in our agriculture. So and we have laws and policies like that allow um, foreign rice to flood our markets and rice is a staple food crop here in the Philippines. So with those kinds of policies, our rice industries are probably going to suffer. And in the long term, it really allows um, entities from outside of the Philippines um, to really control the markets here and jack up the prices when it comes to rice. And that's what really what we're having problems with. Like, even if we wanted to push for um, people to transition to plant-based diet, it's, gonna, it's becoming really difficult. Um, and we can see that it, the things like colonialism and imperialism, the fact that the Philippines has no, like really doesn't invest in its basic industries and its agriculture, uh, it's really tied to those kinds of concepts. And that's why we see it uh, here in Yakup and in our other organizations. It's part of the struggle, really, when it comes to climate justice or advocating for people to, you know, have a, a more democratic access, really, to uh, these plant-based, cheap plant-based alternatives. Yeah, that's really part of the equation. You really have to consider those kinds of problems and talk about them. And when we're talking about agriculture, a lot of, John already touched upon it a bit, but a lot of our agricultural industry, the things being planted aren't even being eaten by Filipinos. They're, they're cash crops. They're being planted to be exported and so the things that are actually set, sold here in the philippines are so expensive because the things that are made locally are being sold abroad and then the things that are being sold here are coming from other countries and so it doesn't make sense like just the rice um it, you know like what john already touched upon with the with our rice here like majority of our farmers are rice are rice farmers but then we are one of the top um Asian or Southeast Asian countries who imports rice. It, it does not make sense because it doesn't support our farmers and it ends up with people having to having not a lot not having a lot of options in terms of unless you know you have access to um, small farmers that, that not everyone has, right? But um, that's that's what we're really trying to change the mode of production of our food systems. The way that our food is being produced is like both in the um, plant-based food, but also animals, like the way that our food system is created is not to satisfy people and letting people be able to eat, but really it's just for profit because we don't need this much animal produce. We don't need this much um, vegetable produce either. It's there to supply to this invisible demand for profit, but not to actually feed anyone. So I, I have a question based off of, you know, uh, what you were saying that's not on our list. So when you're talking about everything being just for profit and that's, you know, a problem of just, you know, capitalism being, you know, a pain on countries, how much of a socialist movement is there currently in the Philippines for advocating for, you know, a change in the economic model, even somewhat? Um, because that sounds like it's what, you know, you need if that's what's struggling. Um, that's actually a very dangerous topic to talk about here in the Philippines because people have been killed. <laughs> the thing is here in the Philippines, like uh, when it comes to um, things like that, like even progressive sentiments, not even social, not, like even if you don't even mention socialism or whatever, just being progressive um, and advocating for an alternative to our current system right now, um, people have been harassed and killed for those advocacies. And that's really the troubling thing here in the Philippines. Like we are experiencing probably... Um, one of the some of the worst manifestations of uh, the capitalist economy and the capitalist world system, um, and that really goes to show. I mean, that really it 
really pushes a lot of people here in the Philippines to really think outside the box and really push for advocacies that, you know, really demand the change in the system. But the reality is because of that, because we're going against the status quo, a lot of people are being persecuted for that. And yeah, so there is a pretty strong movement actually here in the Philippines uh, when it comes to those kinds of advocacies. Um, and yeah, but again, it's a really dangerous thing. Um, it's really dangerous to be even affiliated with organizations that our government prescribes as terrorists. Like it's, it's a death sentence sometimes, particularly outside of the cities where you're in the countryside, in the rural areas, like where, again, the media isn't there. People can just get away with, um, you know, disappearing people. Like some, there are some cases where people just end up vanishing completely and typically state forces who are behind that. So yeah, that's the reality here in the Philippines. Yeah. And the reason why it's so dangerous, the reason why there's such active repression from the government is because there is a civil war happening in the Philippines. So the Communist Party of the Philippines and, and our current government, um, there, is, there is that power clash or dynamic that's happening. And there is a lot of support for the Communist Party of the Philippines in the rural areas. And so anyone who dares speak up against the government will be seen as a supporter of um, the Communist Party of the Philippines. I'll just be calling it the party from now. Um, will be seen as the part as a supporter of the party or even part of the party. And so even if all you're asking for is basic human rights, like, like so many farmers have asked for just subsidies for, um, what's big ass in English? Uh, rice seed? Yeah, I don't know. Like, like I don't know how to translate it, but subsidies for so that they can plant their rice properly because you know they've been having troubles because the government and the country keeps importing um, rice from other countries. They're met with literal repression and they're called terrorists and communists. So that's why they're called terrorists because anyone who dares to call out injustice, calls out the inaction of the government, is framed as a communist, and here that means you are a terrorist. And so we use the word red tagged a lot because that means you've been tagged as a red um, rebel. That, that reminds me of the red scare back in uh, the U.S. when that happened and McCarthyism and all that. Please look into how the World Bank is involved in, 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 in oppressing the Philippines. Um, look into the Jakarta deals that happened back in the 70s. Um, when it comes to the power grid in the Philippines and how that has impacted the economy in the Philippines up until now. Um, because you can see that the World Bank is currently um, talking, they, they always have these articles that are like, oh, we're doing so much. But really what they're doing is they're, you know, how they have really high interest rates, really, really heavy loans that are crashing the economy in the Philippines. And, and that right there has a lot to do with why um, there's issues with importing food and, and exporting food is because it has a lot to do with the agreements that were made back in the 70s with the World Bank. Um, I just wanted to make that kind of, you know, connection so that people know where to look for more information. So to get to um, our next question that we actually planned, um, so, and to on what you two focus on, particularly in your lives. So it's abundantly clear that as part of the global South, the Philippines are experiencing climate change in a more severe and current fashion than the rest of the world, um, which is extremely unfortunate. And so could you give us a brief introduction as to what is currently changing and how it's impacting your local communities? So the Philippines is the fourth most vulnerable country in the world to the climate crisis in the past 10 years. We've had the most number of extreme weather events in the past 10 years. The three strongest storm landfalls in recorded history all happened in the Philippines. And I just gave you a bunch of numbers and statistics that don't mean anything. Um, you, you won't understand that because you might have never seen it. But to help you see and understand how it feels, it means people being afraid of drowning in their own bedrooms waking up in the middle of the night and the floods have gone into your room and you have to scoop it out. And this is a privileged story already. Growing up with having to do your homework and having dinner by the candlelight, which sounds so romantic, but it's because you have no electricity because of the banging and the raging typhoon outside. That is how the climate crisis looks like in the Philippines. It's biggest manifestation is through the typhoons, um, which I think in the U.S., they I think it's more of like hurricanes. It's basically the same thing, just like from different wind direction things. 
science. Um, but yeah, it's 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 that's how it is in the Philippines where we had to listen to a battery powered radio to listen if the people in other cities, if our friends, our family are safe and hearing that people are stranded on their rooftops with floods reaching up to the second to third floors of 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 houses, which means um, 12 meters or 40 feet high. That's how the climate crisis looks like. And we've experienced over like five, six once in a lifetime typhoons. These are all supposed to be once in a lifetime, but there's been more than I can remember. I grew up with the typhoons. We all did. And this is, again, a privileged story already. So many others have been impacted way worse, especially the people without proper household. If you, I, I never know how to explain it, but you have to look it up to be able to understand it. The squatter areas, the the urban poor areas, the way houses are set up, it's basically like thin sheets of metal um, patched together and with a tire on top for a roof to put to keep the roof down. It, it's, it's that bad. It seems like a movie almost, but it's not. Um, and our farmers, because, you know, the way farming is done here is it's done by hand and our farmers don't own their own land. And so... These farmers, they don't usually have a place to go to when the typhoons come also. It's just all these things coming together. And we have to remember, like, really the ones who are least responsible for the climate crisis, not just in the Philippines as a whole, but even inside the Philippines, are the most vulnerable, are the ones who are damaged the most because of the climate crisis. Yeah, just to add to what Mitzi said, um, again, I'll just throw a random statistic. Like, again, it's just numbers at this point. But the 10 costliest typhoons to ever hit the Philippines all happened within the last 15 years. So it's really a thing. It's, it's, it's getting worse and worse. Um, and I guess some, something that Mitzi didn't, wasn't able to touch on maybe uh, was on the flip side where we have all these typhoons, of course. But on the other side of things, we have immense droughts sometimes when the El Nino season hits. Um, one particular um, very problematic instance was what happened in 2016. The El Nino season was very bad in 2016. I think 2016 is the warmest year on record. Um, so it really caused massive droughts in Southern Philippines. And the thing is, of course, the farmers were uh, greatly affected by this. They ended up protesting, really, because they weren't getting any support for, um, for what was happening, the immense droughts. They weren't able to plant their seeds and they were just asking for rights from the government. And guess what? The, the government killed those farmers. It was a massacre. It's called the Kidapawan Massacre. You can look it up. It happened in April 2016. So can that's just really the manifestation the of, of the crisis character here in the Philippines. Can you um, repeat the name of that, of that massacre? I'm so sorry. Uh, the Kidapawan Massacre. Okay, thank you. Um, it, that's really the manifestation of the climate, uh, the, cli the crisis character of the climate crisis here in the Philippines. It's not just about worsening weather um, or, you know, worse typhoons or worse droughts. It's the fact that on top of that, we have this government whose main recourse when it comes to um, people, you know, um, having problems or clamoring for change, it's bullets. And so it's, if you're not going to die from the climate crisis, from the raging typhoons or the actual droughts, you're going to die because of the government um, thinking again, as we mentioned earlier, you're a rebel or a terrorist or a communist. Yeah, that's the reality here in the Philippines. That really sucks. It sounds like a pretty lose-lose scenario. I mean, like, yo, you know, the world's against you, your own government's against you. Um, you know, I mean, massive respect for like, you know, trying, you know, keeping your head up through all this. Absolutely. Um, and I want to ask you guys, and I'm sure you guys understand this a lot better than I do, but um, from my understanding, a lot of the issues of the climate crisis has a lot to do with how weather patterns, right, move across continents and how a lot of the pollution that is occurring in the global north is actually traveling towards the global south. And um, for example, um, you can look at like maps of pollution and how the pollution from the United States directly actually impacts um, communities in Africa and how also the Europe, European, um, you know, pollution impacts people in the Philippines. Um, so I guess, how can you guys articulate how the global north um, you know, impacts the, the global South besides necessarily just the economic and colonial, I guess, interests that we have in, in the global South. The literal emissions are that's causing the climate crisis is coming from global North 
countries or Global North companies. So you already mentioned the um, colonial aspects of the policy work, but there's also the part where multinational companies are overexploiting our lands and taking natural resources from us. So our mining industry, our deforestation, this is all happening because of Global North countries or it's funded by Global North banks. So it's, it's really showing how the Global North is putting profit, like especially for banks, it's such a clear manifestation of that system where the Global North Bank will get all the profit and it'll invest it in coal-fired power plants or in companies that, that create coal-fired power plants. And then that is causing the destruction of the Philippines. And so you're really seeing how the profit destruction cycle um, is happening along with the import-export um, cycle. And I'm sure John will have something to add aside from the emissions. Um, yeah, just to add to what Mitzi was saying, I guess something I always say to people when I try to explain the role of the global north is that in a lot of ways, they're exporting the climate crisis or the environmental crisis away from there to places like the Philippines and the global south. I mean, you can see it when you just look it up, like the fact that um, places in Africa are being dump sites for plastic. Um, there's also that. And the fact that, again, um, uh, all the, there's, while the global north might easily dream and actually might be able to achieve all those promises of a Green New Deal with your electric cars and your uh, solar farms or whatever, um, where will those minerals come from? Where will, the, where will those things come from? It will come from mining operations in the global south. So the, our, our attempt to address the climate crisis can't just be a reproduction of like, the current logic of our, economic, uh, our current economic system, where it's just going to, uh, again, export the problems to the global south. So as you can see, we have massive deforestation here in the Philippines. Um, entire mountains have been flattened from, our, from mining operations. Um, while the global north gets to enjoy or gets to solve, quote unquote, the climate crisis on their end. Um, so yeah, it really, it really demands like this holistic approach um, and the reimagining of how the world should work. Like that's the thing about the climate crisis, I feel. It's, some, it's, a, it's such a big problem and the old solutions, quote unquote, that, have been, that, are, that are in place are not, cannot be effective in this current unprecedented situation. So yeah. Um, I think the point you brought up about the Green New Deal is super important because, you know, obviously none of the American politicians are going to admit that, you know, oh, there's this huge flaw in it that's not going to really solve the problem. But thankfully, you know, um, a lot of people on social media are saying, hey, like exactly the same thing you were about, you know, oh, where are all these minerals coming from? You know, this is going to still not really solve the problems of imperialism and exploiting other countries. And so, um it's hard because like we have these elected officials, but we also need them to sort of really holistically understand the problems that they have responsibility to handle. Also kind of piggybacking off of what you were saying, John, um, when it comes to uh, sustainable energy, I did a, a sustainable energy uh, study abroad in Scandinavia whenever I was an undergrad. And something that I that I really noticed that was different about what Scandinavia does versus what other Western countries like the United States do when it comes to trying to figure out, you know, how to how to solve the energy crisis, is that they use different methods. So, um, for example, when we think when we think in the United States of what clean energy looks like, we think of things like hydroelectric dams. Um, we think of things like solar energy um, and wind energy. And when I was in Scandinavia, a lot of what they especially Iceland. Iceland, I don't know if you guys know this, has so much power that um, has so much extra energy that they, if they could export it, right, they would be rich because they have, they produce 200 200%, right, of the energy that they need to power the entire island. Um, and they also can heat the entire island from geothermal energy. Um, and they heat the roads to keep the ice from going over it by running geothermal energy below the, below the roads. It's really awesome. Um, but that's because they have a lot of active volcanoes there. Um, and, you know, they, they are using the natural resources that they have on their land to, to solve that problem. And they're not necessarily needing minerals from other places to create solar energy panels. And in the United States, we have similar, we have similar geothermic uh, areas and properties. And we have similar, um, like another example is Copenhagen actually has a trash plant. Um, it looks like a ski, it looks like a ski lift. It's really cool. Like it's like a, it's a big ski ramp and it all, it like, during the wintertime, it works as a ski ramp where people can go skiing. 
um, instead of using mountains. And then during the summertime, they run it as a garbage plant. So it's really cool. Um, and I think that, you know, if we could rethink the way that we, obviously I'm not going to glorify Scandinavia because they have their own imperialist problems, but if we could rethink the way that we think of energy in a, similar to what the way that they're thinking about energy, I think that we could probably, you know, pull away from the, the ideas of pulling minerals from the global South, but obviously it's cheaper to invest in solar infrastructure for Western countries. And so they're not going to, they're going to go with the cheaper option if they can. Um, and as for hydroelectric dams, since we're about to pivot to how, uh, how industrialized fishing is a problem, um, we're going to first talk, I'm going to, I'm going to mention why hydroelectric dams are not the way to go. Um, so the way that hydroelectric dams work, and I I'm saying this as I live in a community that, um, largely exports, um, we have a TVA dam that largely exports, um, energy. So actually the TVA dam that is 10 minutes from my house, um, exports so much energy that it actually, it, it basically powers, all of the communities within like a 200 mile radius. So it, it produces a lot of energy and that's great. But what it also does is it, in order for them it to work, it basically, you have to create floodplains. So you have to move people out of indigenous land, like move people out of those areas, create a giant floodplain, which is basically like a lake. Um, and then that over, whenever you have a lake that is created by a dam, obviously that area is going to become overdeveloped because people are going to want to go there for vacations. Um, it also harms fish uh, because just the way that it works, essentially fish end up dying going through the dams. And also because it's a basically free um, source of power, a lot of companies will then move towards or move near um, the hydroelectric dams and pollute the rivers um, you know, immensely. And the pollution that happens in the rivers automatically affects the oceans because um, the ocean, uh, we all know this, right? Like any pollution that happens in the river is going to end up in the ocean. I live in the Tennessee River, which connects, um, it, you know, connects to the Mississippi River, which immediately dumps into the Gulf of Mexico. And so any pollution that happens where I live is going to end up impacting communities in the Caribbean. And so, you know, if you're thinking about it that way, obviously hydroelectric dams are not the way to go either. My question for you guys, because you guys are the experts on this, is how is industrialized fishing and farmed fishing harming the environment? Um, obviously, I'm not talking about indigenous fishing. Um, I'm talking specifically about industrialized fishing happening from the Global North companies um, and farm fishing happening on off the coasts of, of Global North countries as well. And rather than the individual approach of reducing personal in, personal fish intake, how can we, uh, as an as a people, right? How can how can the world help the oceans? Okay, I'll take this one. When it comes to industrialized fishing, actually, yeah, the Philippines in particular is actually a pretty big fish producer. I think we're within the top ten in the world. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. You can check it up. Or we're the eighth, apparently. Okay, so. We're a big fish producer, and that would give you the impression that we actually have a lot of fish going into the Philippines or something, but that, that's actually not the case. Again, we import fish um, when it comes to um, the fish that we actually eat, um, the fish that are actually available to, that people usually consume, like uh, staple fish like galunggong. Um, I'm not sure what you call it in the English, but that's one of the fish that people usually eat. We import that. Um, and the thing is, um, while we are one of the, we are in like the coral triangle. We're one of the uh, most biodiverse places in the world when it comes to marine um, uh, wildlife. And of course that has like, you, know, you, would, you would assume, and it's probably correct that there's a lot of fish stock here in the Philippines. Most of the people who are actually producing the fish or like catching the fish uh, from our shores are again, large scale foreign companies, um, particularly, um, and this is a very like recent topic, a recent problem here in the Philippines is how uh, Chinese fishing vessels are actually encroaching um, into our ex exclusive economic zone here in the Philippines um, to fish and to get our fish stocks. And it's really the, our fisher folk, our small fisher folk who are affected because that's their livelihood. But you have these massive um, industrialized fishing vessels that, you know, that have the capacity to swallow up entire sections of the ocean um, and to catch fish. Like, what will our small fisher folk do? What can they do about that? Um, there's also recent laws, actually, that... Um, I don't know why it's being pushed now, uh, especially with that current like uh, problem with those uh, Chinese fishing vessels. Um, that um, so there's a law that be, that's being pushed that will actually even 
make the the fishing uh, the fishing grounds of our um, of the small scale fisher folk even smaller. So to allow commercial fishing vessels to you know fish in more areas. Um, that's a law that's being passed or being considered right now in the Philippines. So that's a big problem for, again, our small fisher folk mainly. Um, and of course, the environment in general, because these massive commercial enterprises are not being sustainable when it comes to how they um, practice um, fishing, really. Um, and the thing is, like, again, you have to really uh, connect it all with that whole imperialist and colonialist thing um, here in the Philippines, like the fact that, okay, we have these uh, Chinese fishing vessels that are illegally encroaching into the Philippines, and then we have suddenly, um, I mean, they're protected by Chinese military, like, um, they're, they're stealing some of our islands, <laughs> um, it's pretty bad, like, um, and they're destroying coral reefs in the process, like, everything you can imagine, like, um, very problematic things, like actual, like, invasion is happening right in our shorelines, and our government being uh, our president in particular, being a very um, close friend of China, is saying nothing about it. I mean, he's just saying that, oh, um, they're giving us vaccines due to COVID, so we can't say anything about it. That's what they're, that's literally what's being said. So again, all of these problems interplaying with one another, um, making it very difficult to campaign against these things, especially again, if you say anything, the government will see you as an enemy. I think Mitzi has a point. I'm just, I just wanted to add like the, so people really understand how outrageous it is that we're importing fish. Um, the fish that we're importing is taken from our seas. Like, remember when um, John was saying that China, um, large fishing industries from China um, was taking up the spaces of the, the small fisher folk? That same type of fish is what's being sent to China processed there you add like a bunch of chemicals in it and then they put it in a can and then sell, send it back to us so it's the same fish coming from our seas and literally like you already have the environmental repercussions of the way that large um, fishing companies do it like with crawling and with with just these massive nets that are not uh, sustainable at all and then also the emissions of transporting all that fish for literally no reason when it comes from the sea it like it's literally coming from our seas and people will say that oh you know whatever like the fisher folk they can just fish somewhere else right but it's not just that they're also being harassed they're also being killed they're being like literally the large boats are ramming into their small tiny boats this is what's happening. And the governor and our president, when he was running, he was he was saying, like, oh, I'm gonna go up to the Ch to China and claim back our seas and say, nope, this is ours. Because they've also claimed some of our islands which have oil in it. Um, so you you kind of know why they're trying to claim that island. Um, so they they're trying to claim the island, they've put like their military in it, they've made an unofficial or maybe it's official now military base there. And now our president is like, oh, that was a joke. Can't you guys tell what a metaphor is? When I, I was, because when he was running, he was like, I'm going to go on a jet ski myself and go there and plant the Philippine flag. And now that this is happening, Filipinos are like, where's your promise? Like, they, we have this recorded. And he's like, that's a metaphor. That's a joke. You know, that's always his excuse to everything. Like, everything he said was just a metaphor and a joke. And that really just shows how much of a clown he is. So, um, when it comes to when it comes to like generally how the oceans are impacted by overfishing, um, I mean, as climate activists, I'm, I know that there's a lot of information out there basically saying that the ocean itself and right the fish that live in the ocean have a lot to do with how our climate is is regulated, right? Um, like the ocean, you can think of it as a giant carbon cap capture machine because it's got so much plant life down on the on the floor, and when we trawl and remove all of those plant the plant life on the bottom. Um, we're impacting right the amount of carbon that we can capture when we're killing fish like that. Um, when we're killing like large predators like sharks, um, we're harming the way that fish themselves are like impacted. Um, when we you know kill off when we overfish, we also kill coral reefs because it's the fish that feed the coral reefs um, and things like that. I guess do you guys have any more information to kind of share with our listeners about how the ocean impacts our climate? So the ocean or like blue carbon, as they say, as you already mentioned, is such a massive carbon sink, which means it 
helps a lot in trying to reduce our emissions, not just the ocean, but also mangroves, corals, and all of this. It's so, so important that we protect our ocean because it's storing a lot of our emissions, but that also means that it's starting to warm, which means that the ice caps are melting and, and it's just it's just kind of, it's like a domino effect almost. So we have to be really careful. And I realized that we didn't give any answers to the other question earlier about what can we do? And we read just like doom and gloom. There are things that you can do. So in the Philippines, it's really, a lot of it is supporting the campaigns of fishing communities and of you know a lot of Filipinos for national sovereignty because it is a national sovereignty issue and with global north people it's supporting campaigns like this in the global south and really learning and understanding what's happening not just condemning all types of fishing everywhere and saying that it's bad everywhere but not even understanding what's happening I mean if it is accessible to you and if you are able to source your food ethically and you can go vegan then go ahead and do that but I also understand that not everyone has that privilege. But also when you go vegan, when you go vegetarian, when you change your diet, try to make sure that it's not just like changing your diet, but also looking into where your food is coming from, which is I know so much harder. That's why I do see that it is a privilege of not just economics, but also time, which is often tied to your economic status. Um, so there are a lot of things that, that you can do, but it really starts with understanding and learning what's happening and supporting the existing struggles of resistance because they're already there there's already resistance in all these places they might not see themselves or frame themselves as environmental resistance or environmental protectors it might be a national sovereignty issue but it's the same thing because once you get rid of the problem no matter what you're trying to like no matter how you attack it what narrative you use it is all the same problem Those are all really great points. And um, I think it's not the, that big of a deal that you are a bit gloom and doom because, you know, I think it's important at least for our listeners to understand how bad things are, I guess, you know, especially when a lot, I, I think, I think last time I looked at our statistics, a lot of our listeners are from global North countries. So therefore more of the onus is on us to try and, you know, get our politicians to pressure these companies to, you know, change their habits and such. Uh, but yeah, um, go ahead. I also wanted to add, if you're from the U.S., um, a lot of, not just the U.S., a lot of countries in the global north fund our military, which protect um, these multinational companies that are destroying our environment. And so there are usually quite a number of campaigns where you call your senators or something um, to get them to stop the military sales to our country, not just the Philippines, but the, the global south. Um so yeah, that's definitely something, a more concrete action point that you guys can look into. I will definitely look into that and see if we can get that into our sources. Um, I've seen all those kind of, you know, you know, these days there've been lots of really easy uh, fill out formats to email your Senator, email your Congressperson, and that's awesome. Um, but so to move on to our last question. Um, so as you probably know, there was recently a documentary called Seaspiracy that was released to raise awareness about the problems in the fishing industry as a whole and the impact on the environment. And so we're curious, A, if you've seen it and what are your thoughts on it? Ashley has some thoughts as well. I assume you would like to uh, kick it off with that. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to frame the question a little bit more narrowly um, because I really my issue with the documentary, I, re I watched it. I've never in my life watched a vegan documentary before. Um, and this was my first one. And I only watched it because I wanted to discuss it with you guys. So like, that's the only reason why I watched it. And, um, and I have a lot of issues with those films, with those types of films in general. But um, my, my main problem was that it, it centered a, a white individual um, and the entire film centered white individuals and white activists. Um, and that was part of our inspiration really for reaching out to people who are actually being impacted from like actually being impacted by the climate crisis when it comes to fishing, like talking to you guys was because I heard you guys talking about seriously. And I was like, wait a second, wait, they're not centering people who are actually being indigenous people who are actually being, you know, harmed by uh, fishing industries. And like the only time that they actually talked to a person of color the entire time was whenever they were talking about fish slavery, um, fishing slavery. So that, that was really frustrating for me. So I guess um, kind of, yeah, talk about the issues that you guys had with the film, but also I, I kind of want to hear your perspective on why you think 
they didn't center people of color whenever they were talking or indigenous people in general, when they were talking about this film um, and why they targeted Asia so much rather than actually talking about what the global North is doing, what, what America is doing right to harm the oceans. Okay. I'll start the discussion. Yeah. I mean, it was particularly funny for me and Mitzi watching the film because there's this one point in the film where they talked about this, um, uh, like, fishing monitor person in the Philippines who was killed and um, who was sent a death threat. And then in the animation, like what they showed was like this ancient script of the Philippines and it's not even used anymore. I don't know why they used it, or it, but I think it just shows how badly researched, uh, to be honest, the whole film is. Like a lot of scientists have actually come out and said that a lot of the statistics and a lot of the data that was used in the film are actually not that accurate. Like they paint a very um, biased or a very... Uh, ultimately inaccurate picture of what's actually going on. While the fishing industry does contribute, like it has a big contribution to the destruction of our of ocean ecosystems for sure, and also plastic pollution. It's not, it was, it's, it was very alarmist in its approach. Um, yeah, and it's picking a lot of data that supported its views and all of that. Going to your question though, about why they sort of like picked on Asia and like highlighted that as a big problem. I don't know. I honestly don't know why um, anyone would actively choose to do that. It might have just been some subconscious um, decision on their part, or maybe like just the fact that being a white person in the global North, you have better access to other white people. It's more, it's a lot easier to talk to them or communicate with them because they're right there. You can just send them a message. There's no cultural barriers to sort of circumvent. Um, and that's the issue. That's the real issue here. I guess um, the fact that, well, I a just want to say it, it obviously wasn't too hard. It's not too hard to contact people in the global south because yeah. it took <laughs> me two seconds to, to DM. So, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, it's not actually that hard for him to contact them. He just didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm going to say true. I'm going to be a lot less nice than John. They were they were doing that because they were racist. They were being white saviorists. Full stop. No excuses. It might have been subconscious. I don't fucking care if it was subconscious fucking change it like there is no excuse in this day and age to be this blatantly white saviorist you know like the smaller things like another thing i absolutely hate is when people go oh i want to be a voice for the voiceless like we're not fucking whales or turtles we have our own voice i don't want to hear that unless you're talking about whales or turtles but you know like those things i still kind of excuse because it's like you know culture blah blah mainstream media etc but this is so clearly white saviors they they use that ancient script to make filipinos look more exotic no other reason why it's not just the visuals it's also the way when you look at the music being played when it was in asia but then when literal footage of whales being killed by white people it was this orchestra that seemed peaceful and they were tearful and they were like uh this is sustainable but it's still really sad it's like you didn't look at the people who were actually sustainable like you were already there like i don't even okay there are a lot of sustainable fishing communities in asia and southeast asia but okay say you want to demonize asia because it's the it's the minority that's easier to demonize a bit right now right so but you were already in west africa they were right there like like the the sustainable fishing communities were right there you could have just asked them but you decided not to and so that was an active decision to not ask and i don't care if it was subconscious or not but it was still racist it was still white saviorist and there it's not hard as ashley mentioned it's not hard to find people literally you search online and you'll find a lot of fisher fisher's rights advocates and you know, the whole thing, it ended as a giant commercial. I was like, how come there's a new character being interviewed in the middle of nowhere character? Like it's a movie because I, I don't want to ever call it a documentary because it's not accurate at all. So it is a movie to me. There's this new character. And then her line is like, oh, look at this plant-based food from my company. It's literally a giant commercial. And, you know, they had some, they were getting somewhere at some point in the middle because when you're filming the truth, even if you're shit at filming and narrative framing, it's still the truth. It'll come out. So you sort of started seeing the truth and they could have built on that. But then they decided to wrap it all up and say, look at this commercial. And so there are, you know, so many people are like, oh, but at least it's raising a little bit of awareness. But there are other documentaries. There are other sources that you could be looking into. 
we don't need to excuse something and support it just because it's the only one, especially since it's not even the only one. Follow up on a point you just made. Those are all um, very great criticisms that I think are important to take note of. Um, so you mentioned, okay, so there are other documentaries that are better than this one. Do you know any off the top of your head to recommend to our listeners? One of them is Chasing Coral. Um, I don't know if that's on Netflix, guys. I'm so sorry. I don't know what's on Netflix and not. And then there's it's not exactly so chasing coral isn't exactly just about um like fishing that's the thing i haven't seen one that talks about all the things that um seaspiracy also talked about but they did it in in different ways i have a source somewhere i'm trying to look for it um aside from chasing coral there's chasing ice which is kind of the same people and then there's one about the dolphins in fiji also but i don't remember what it's called um i'm gonna try to look for it john gostal any oh any well, any sources that you find like that you want to send to us after the fact of this episode we will put on our sources pages on our page on our website um so um listeners you can you can find any sort of information that was sent to us um by both Mitzi and John um that can help you kind of you know reframe the way that you think about the oceans and what you're saying about how they were getting somewhere in the middle um how they were getting somewhere in the middle they when they were talking about specifically like pointing out that there's these large like western countries uh, com- companies that are all intertwined and western organizations that are all intertwined that um don't actually do anything for the oceans but are but you know get tons and tons of money for for that kind of thing and how they don't talk about how uh industrial fishing is a problem because they're directly benefit they directly benefit from fishing being a problem um I think that that right there was like what the focus of the film should have been was just like them talk a Western person talking about how Western companies are harming the oceans. He should not have even started. I don't think that starting the film in Japan, right. Talking about a small fishing community who, you know, traps dolphins and, and brings them, you know, whatever, you know, th- those people doing population control, or whatever to the dolphins, they was, he was talking about how that was like 15 or, you know, whatever dolphins get killed every year. It was like a very small number, right? It wasn't even for him to start there automatically gave me this tone of, okay, this is white saviorism. This isn't even him talking about what's really going on. And like, if he had focused the entire film on what we as Western people are doing and what we can do to change it rather than saying, Hey, here's all this stuff happening in Asia. Oh, and here's like a small bit about Somalia and this like, militant um group that has a shark looking boat um you know i don't remember what the name of that group was and i'm not gonna you know promote them on here but like basically just showing centering white people the entire time um was awful and if he had actually just focused on what we can do and what we're doing to the oceans instead of like demonizing the entire continent of asia um in the documentary i feel like it probably would have actually been useful but uh, at this point, I, I don't. I would not recommend that anybody actually watches it. One thing I want to add um, about you know when it comes to what people can do to reduce their impact, um, I think you know your personal plastic use, if possible, is something really important to consider. Because one fact, <clears throat> one fact that I think that I came across relatively recently is how bad recycling is, specifically in America and probably in other global north and western countries too. Last time I saw, I think the number was like somewhere around 8% of like hard plastic is actually recycled and the rest either ends up in, you know, um, a landfill or an ocean or the landfill leaching into the ocean. And so, you know, um, when it comes to our individual actions um, and collective actions, you know, you can A, reduce plastic where you can in your personal lives and work with like your communities, um, petition companies to reduce their plastic use because, um, you know, that's, you know, a huge factor as well that I think is important to remember. I want to also add for you guys, just for so that you guys know a little bit more about me. I actually do come from a small sustainable fishing family. Um, uh, my family, uh, is from, uh, Northern California and they were fishermen up until like now I still have, you know, family members that are fishermen, but they can no longer actually, fish and survive 
um, anymore. And when I say like a really small community, I mean, like it's a, it's a population of maybe, maybe 3000 people lives in the town that my family's from. Um, and it's no longer, they're no longer able to fish because the, the oceans have been overfished to the point where they don't, they, they can't sustain it. Um, and so actually like just thinking about that in general, how it's impacted Northern California and, and, you know, in also indigenous communities across the coast of, of, of our, you know, the Western, sorry, the Western coast of the United States, when we're thinking about that, like they could have talked about that. I think they could have talked about, you know, what's what we're doing here. But uh, like I said, I'm still upset about it. Go on. <laughs> and I just wanted to add on plastic pollution, um, a really good movie that really opened my eyes to this also is the story of plastic. A lot of times plastic, the plastic crisis is dealt as a waste crisis. But if you look at who's producing it, it's also the fossil fuel industry. So it's the same thing, like as the fossil fuel industry gets pushed out of the energy systems because of the climate movement, the climate movement also has to make sure that they join forces with the zero waste um, movement to make sure that it doesn't just go into um, more plastic production because then we'll end up with the same problem in a different form. So how do you guys feel about bioplastics? Um, like that's something that um, I'm just wondering, because I know that a lot of bioplastics are starting to be sourced actually from seafood. Um, from like the, the, the waste that's left over from seafood. So for example, a lot of bioplastics are being um, produced from um, shrimp, like shrimp casings that are, no, that are removed during um, industrialization. And, you know, whenever they're basically producing the fish that we have in the frozen section. Right. Um, so I guess, what do you guys think about bioplastics and how do you, do you think that that's some like, way future, way to the future? Or do you think that it's just basically the industrial um, fishing industry, basically just like I don't know, making more money off of their exploitation. Um, on the topic of bioplastics, I think at the end of the day, we have to figure out ways how we can reduce waste, even if that waste is biodegradable. If we're overproducing um, those bioplastics that are made from seafood or whatever, that will mean we're going to extract seafood, right? Uh, yeah, we're going to get that. Even if we're just going to use the waste products of the seafood, like we're still going to, again, reproduce that whole oh, we can just keep taking from the from nature and then we'll just figure out ways how to deal with it in the long run. Like, so yeah, it's really about reimagining, I guess a better way and a way that is really in our hands at this point and has, has been in our hands for the longest time is to graduate from the whole idea that things have to come in packaging. Like those things might not even be necessary at some point, um, especially if we, and I think that really has a, it, a, a restructuring of how our economy works really has to go with along with it because packaging is only important because you move things around a lot. It needs to be preserved in containers or whatnot when you import it or export it. If you advocate for a more like localized production, like those things might not be um, a problem anymore. It might not even be something you have to think about so much. Um, there's something here in the Philippines that was that's called the tingi culture. It means that uh, at least before. Uh, maybe like a few decades ago, uh, what it means like was people would go to um, the local stores here in their communities. And then what they would do is that they, instead of like getting the things in packets or getting the things in sachets, as they do now, because that's what, that's the thing now. Um, that's the alternative what they do right now. Um, what they would do is that they just bring cups and all of that. And then they just get the things that they need. So for example, if they need soy sauce or salt or whatever, like that's, they just get those in reusable containers that they have lying around. And then it's up to the vendor, how they were, how they would be charged. That needs like, that's like a better alternative to having all these bioplastics or plastics or whatever, I think, because yeah, just really moving forward from that whole disposable, um, like nature of things, um, nowadays, like, that's something I think that we have to look into and really promote more than alternatives to um, disposable things. Um, uh, one more thing on that specifically, John, is if you are in the global north and you have the privilege to have access to community supported agriculture and you're not being exploited um, to the point where you can you can't even, you know, consume your own agricultural products like you guys are experiencing in the Philippines. Um, remember that you are privileged for living in the United States if you do live in the United States and that there are community support agricultural groups literally everywhere in the nation. Um, when I say that, I mean like I live in a town of 2000 people and we have a farmer's market. Um, we have local crops that are grown here. If you can source your 
if you can source your vegetables and your produce locally, then you then you are helping the problem when it comes to stealing from the global South and stealing the food from the global South, because that food is grown in your community. And sometimes that's going to mean cutting out food that cannot be grown in your community. You're going to have to start changing your diet to only eat food that can be produced locally. And that's something that I'm personally working on myself, but um, maybe you don't necessarily need pineapple and mangoes in your, in your diet. Like you can eat, fruits that are that are easily able to be grown in your community for example probably none of you guys have heard of um what's it called uh we have huckleberries and we also have mulberries here probably never heard of those no they're both like basically grapes that are grown here and nobody knows about them because they're not like they haven't been industrialized but like if you don't you can cut out other fruits and have other rich fruits that are easy to be grown in your community um and you know and that's something that I think that people can do is, is in general, you know? Um, so that's, that's my com- comment towards the people in the global north. I, I think this problem with that stems from the fact that um, majority of people, at least I would argue, um, shop at, you know, large scale grocery stores um, in America and in other global north countries. Um, and, you know, we have pretty much every fruit and vegetable in existence not oftentimes not even based on season because we can just import them from wherever. And then rarely people take the time to look at, oh, where did this come from? Or, you know, how much are the workers exploited for, you know, this company or whatnot? And so, you know, we're sort of not only desensitized to, okay, you know, oh, there's the animal products there and you're desensitized because they're living beings, but you're desensitized to the fact that this came from this other country and they went through this process. And I think, you know, Finding your local um, CSA is super important for trying to change awareness and change mentalities of like how to just live a more sustainable life if you can. And um, I normally don't advocate for companies, but I'm going to advocate for a company right now here in the United States that is important, that is that is good when it comes to um, trying to reduce the amount of waste that comes from agricultural products. And that is uh, companies like Misfits Market. Um, which takes food that has that would normally be thrown out or used as um, byproducts for like used as fertilizer um, that are just ugly and wouldn't could not be sold in, in a grocery store and they mail them across the United States. So if you personally do not have access to community supported agriculture, a way that you can support small farmers that would normally throw away these things because these all come from organic small farmers. Um, you can find companies that are like misfits that all, will bring food from other communities in the United States that would normally be losing money profits otherwise. Um, so that that's something else. Obviously, you know, I'm, I, I understand that, um, you know, we can't really, when we're talking about fighting these large companies, it feels like you can't fight these large companies, but <clears throat> we have more market power than people in the global South do when it comes to boycotting these large companies. And we can boycott them to the point where they're no longer functional if we do it properly. I would like to loop back to plastics for one more call to action. Um, so back in February, um, I would like to preface this, while I generally don't have a lot of confidence in the US government when it comes to climate action, but there has been a shift in attitude lately, which I do appreciate. So back in February, there was a bill introduced called the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act. Um, or no, this was February of last year, actually. Um, and it has only, it's gained some traction recently under some, new co- under some new co-sponsors. And so one thing you can do is to get your representative to try and co-sponsor this, um, because this bill would be pretty huge for plastic. You know, uh, I'm looking at it now and I uh, want to highlight a few things. So it makes certain producers of products, you know, pa- packaging, paper, single-use products, et cetera, fiscally responsive fiscally responsible, excuse me, for collecting, managing, recycling, or composting the products. So you're putting the onus on the producer, which is what we're trying to do when we're talking about these big corporations. Um, It would phase out a variety of single-use products, such as plastic utensils, um, sets forth provisions to encourage the reduction of single-use products um, by establishing programs to refund consumers for returning beverage uh, containers, And one other thing that um, stuck out to me was it establishes limitations on the export of plastic waste to other countries. So I know there's a lot to unpack there, but I wanted to highlight that um, because it is something that is, you know, existing in our Congress that I would truly hope to see passed in the future. All right, so we're coming near the end. And my question for you guys is um, one, 
Um, you know, do you guys have any wisdom that you can impart on our on our listeners to basically what we can do in the global north to help the situ- the climate situation? And you know, maybe even organizations besides the ones that obviously we're gonna support the organizations that you guys uh, you guys personally. So like you guys can talk about those for a second and talking about what you do and how we can support you. Um, but kind of just give a call to action. What do you think we can do to help? And um, you know, how can we do that without being white saviors? The first step is to ask. It's not hard to ask, to research, to look online and look for the people talking about it from those areas, those regions, so you really understand. So if you can't have a conversation with the people, you can at least read the things from their own voices. The next is to always decenter yourself. That is the easiest way to not be a white saviorist is to just not think of yourself like, like stop. Um, that does... Saying that, it is a lot harder to do than actually, you know, um, hearing it. Um, And I think a really important thing to remember is white people will never, ever stop learning. All of us will never stop learning. This this system has ingrained in us all this injustice and has made it normal for us to think this way. And so what we need to do is to actively question everything that we do think and say the way we say certain words um the way we say we phrase certain things like this forms a narrative and public perception of of ideas and so we have to be critical and ask and not just accept everything that's being fed to us and you have to accept that it's going to hurt as hell to be called out sure you're you're you know you can feel hurt that's valid but don't stay there don't get stuck in the pain or in the white guilt which we're seeing happening a lot right now in Europe with the colonization of Palestine do not get stuck in the white guilt and in the pain feel it whatever sure but move on from that and look for the raw truth that was being told to you when you were called out not everyone has the capacity to call you out and to tell you why you were wrong in a nice manner because we've been experiencing decades and lifetimes of oppression and injustice. So of course people are gonna be angry and yell at you when you're being white saviors or racist. But that doesn't mean that you don't listen to them just because they're angry. Look for the truth in what's being said and find how you can change and be critical again in every single thing you do because everything you say, everything we do contributes to this greater narrative. And remember that white activists, white people, and, and people of color, these aren't, we're, we aren't each other's enemies, you know? We're all being oppressed by the same system, and they want us to infight. So yes, we're going to call each other out for the wrong things that's happening, but we have, we're doing it because we want each other to grow and to unite more so that we can focus our energy on the people that's causing this system in the first place. Um, and when it comes to uh, how you can support um, other like, the concrete manifestations of supporting places like the Philippines, when it comes to our fight for the climate, like um, when it comes to our organizations, for example, Youth Advocates for Climate Action Philippines, just an extension um, or like uh, it's, it's sort of a chapter of Fridays for Future, but not really. It started uh, alongside of it um, and really just advocating for climate justice. Um, it's a youth organization, a youth alliance. Of organizations and individuals, and then one of my organizations, Saribuhay, is a progressive youth organization uh, fighting for environmental justice here in the Philippines. So, of course, you can look us up, follow us, check us out uh, on social media, support our campaigns. Um, but I think more important than centering just the voice of the youth here in the Philippines is the voices of the people who are most affected by the climate crisis. So, even if the Philippines is the most one of the most affected countries, like the People who are, there's still stratification when it comes to how people are affected within the Philippines. Um, So, of course, the most affected would be the poorest of the poor, the urban poor, um, the fisher fisher folk, the farmers, the indigenous peoples who don't even have the proper infrastructure in place um, or the the adequate measures in place to combat uh, things like storm surges or droughts or um, all those problems. So, looking them up and finding out ways to support the campaigns of those um, of those frontline organizations, frontline communities, um, is another thing that we can do. Um, some organizations I can throw, um, 
in your way would be organizations like the Fisher Folk Organization here in the Philippines, Pamalakaya. We also have the Kilosang Mambubukid ng Pilipinas or the Peasant Movement of the Philippines. Um, that's the farmers organization. So those are just a few examples of the organizations that you can look into, support. Like they do have some international campaigns that maybe people from the global north can support. And yeah, that would be about it. I guess, yeah, um, as people from the global north, I guess one of your biggest roles or ways that you can support the global south is realize that much of the destruction is being decided over there. Um, by, not necessarily by you, by you in particular, but by people that you are, you know, physically a lot closer to, like um, the the CEOs of corporations or the politicians who are actively deciding to support, for example, the Philippine military and its uh, persecution of activists or um, corporations who are destroying uh, the Philippine environment. So, yeah, really about being more aware about what's going on with the corporations in your area and how you can campaign. And again, in solidarity with um with the global south, with the people in the global south. And by solidarity, it really just means not doing it by yourself, going out there and saying, I'm saving the Philippines, I'm saving Africa or whatever, but talking to us. As Mitzi mentioned, you could just send us a message on Twitter and we'd probably reply within a few hours. Like, it's not that hard. So yeah, um, that's really it, I guess, for what, how Global North, how the people from the Global North can help us out here. Well, thank you so much, you guys, for coming on. Um, this has actually been one of the most informative talks we've had on this podcast. And I, I really, really appreciate you guys for coming on. Um, and, and you know, you guys had so much really cool stuff to say that I, I didn't know about. So I really appreciate it. Um, Seth, do you have anything to say? I, I, wholeheartedly, I wholeheartedly agree. We covered a lot of ground. I learned a lot. Um, and definitely making me, you know, be more aware of what's going on. And uh to wrap things up, this has been Behind <laughs> the Tofu. <laughs>